0: Welcome to Rethink, the Future of Skilled Nursing, a podcast from Skilled Nursing News. I'm your host, Alex Spanko. Before we jump into my conversation with Rick Matros from Sabra Healthcare REIT, I want to personally invite you to the upcoming Skilled Nursing News Summit in Chicago this coming June. More than 150 skilled nursing owners, operators, and industry professionals will convene for a morning of networking and industry discussion on regulatory changes, the M&A landscape, new models pioneered by innovative skilled nursing operators, and our C-suite panel featuring the industry's leading C-suite executives. Visit skillednursingnews.com forward slash events to buy your ticket and attend this exciting event. My guest today is Rick Matros, chairman and CEO of Sabra Healthcare REIT, one of the major players in the long-term healthcare real estate space. 2018 was a busy year for Rick and Sabra, with lease restructurings, the concerted effort to dispose of assets operated by Genesis Healthcare, and the end-of-year bankruptcy of another key tenant, senior care centers. I want to know what this real estate investment trust, with a portfolio of more than 690 skilled nursing and senior housing properties, has in store for 2019 and beyond. Rick, thanks so much for taking the time today. Sure, of course. So 2018 was obviously a busy year for you guys at Sabra with the restructuring, with senior care centers at the end of the year. I guess- How would you rate the year so far in 2018 for Saber? And then we can kind of go into what this means for the year ahead.
1: In some respects, it rolled out as we expected. Senior care centers was not expected at the beginning of the year, although when we did the merger, we noted concerns about it on the record, but we thought that it was eminently fixable with the right management team. What turned out to be the case was the sponsor, or OPCO, and the board wasn't able to put the right management team in place. It was kind of as simple as that. And so things really started, they they brought in a, a new executive, new CEO in the spring. We lost a lot of confidence at that point and things began to further deteriorate. So at that point we felt like the best best path was not to hang around and to, to sell the portfolio, which we're well on the way to doing. So but the primary goal for 2018 was to recycle assets and do the restructuring that we wanted to do coming off the merger and the two subsequent acquisitions that we did in a lot of part of 2017 and go into 2019 with a clean slate. And that's really where we're headed. So we expect all of our issues that we're working on to be, be resolved, if not by December 31st, shortly thereafter. So we'll have a clean 2019. We'll have reset the plate with a much stronger company and grow from there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost hard to believe, given all that's happened in the past year, both at Sabre and in the industry writ large, that it's only been a little over a year since the whole CCP merger. Just to kind of circle back to that, are you on track where you thought you'd be with the CCP integration and kind of all the portfolio pruning and all that that went on? And do you think you're at the point you thought you'd be at this point?
1: Yeah, actually, everything else has, had already been done well before this. So senior care center is a separate issue, but the integration we actually completed in the, early in the first quarter before our year-end earnings call. And the restructurings were done in the earlier part of the year. Signature was done months ago, as you know. So all that happened really right on schedule. I say signature may have happened a little bit quicker than expected, but, but generally speaking, everything happened right on schedule. And certainly the results of the merge, just in terms of the diversification we were looking for, giving us the size that we required to start selling the rest of Genesis off, you know, getting investment grade from two of the agencies, you know, all that happened as we expected
0: it. I was just looking at one of your most recent presentations from REIT You're at a 39% skilled mix right now. Is that kind of the concentration that you're looking for right now? or Are there any changes or the changes that in the year ahead?
1: So it's interesting. Once we sell senior care, we'll be just under 60% skilled. So pretty much back to where we were before the CCP merger. And now that sentiment for good reason is changing on skilled, you know, we get all these calls, Hey, you shouldn't have to reduce your skilled exposure. Why don't you buy more skills? You know, and everybody was, that was actually the single biggest issue that people had with us on the CCP merger was that it took our skilled exposure from the high fifties to the low seventies, but we saw a lot of good operators there. And, and look, as you know, we know the business really well. We felt there were much better times ahead and everybody seems to be buying into that now that I think for us selling senior care centers and getting our skilled exposure down has nothing to do with asset class and it's rarely has anything to do with asset class it's all about the operator to us and so getting our skilled exposure you know back to where it was gives us the room to buy more skilled deals if that's those the right opportunities that we see we like the space senior housing has been priced out of the market by the private equity guys over the last two years we don't see that really changing in 2019. Certainly, it could, but as we sit here today, we don't see it changing, and we're not going to be stubborn about it and say, well, if we can't buy senior housing, you know, we don't want to increase our skilled exposure. We're just simply not going to grow. We need to grow the company, so we'll do the skill deals. And we're in a fortunate spot because we have baked in senior housing coming into our port- into the software portfolio. We have 100 million from our development pipeline. Approximately, that'll come in in 2019 and about the same amount in 2020. And then we have the Enliven joint venture, which is another $400 million in terms of equity to bring that portfolio in. And obviously, there's debt that goes along with that. But that that increases our senior housing exposure you know, quite nicely. So, you know, we're, we're just looking to have a balanced portfolio. We don't have a set number in place. I think we have to go where the opportunities are and make sure that we do with the right operators, which I think we've been pretty good about doing. And then, you know, I think, I think everything works out if we just sort of stick to that game plan. But I think the primary thing for us is we need to get the noise behind us so the market is no longer distracted by all the things that we're doing and become a little bit more predictable. We'll be focused on delivering the balance sheet a little bit. And then I think things will, you know, come and, and. And, and the benefits of doing that will accrue to our shareholders.
0: Yeah. So I've been covering this industry for about two years now, and you have consistently been one of the voices that has been upbeat on skilled nursing, that has uh, you know frequently said that there's a place for it, and that the sentiment on the street is not really the way people on the ground feel about it. But it's a thing that you bring up operators. You hear that a lot from investors on all sides of the industry. What specifically do you look for in an operator when you're evaluating deals? What are the top three things that really, you know, pop for you guys when you're evaluating deals in terms of the operator side?
1: Before I get to that, I want to give you what I think is the best example, because when, uh, sure. when Genesis was a big part of our exposure, there was everything was being blamed on the skilled sector. You know, and, and we were saying at the time that look there were things that are specific to certain operators. You know, Genesis has a good, smart operating team. Their sponsor was a little bit deal crazy and they just got too big. And we don't think you could effectively run that kind of business in this space at the size they were. And so we felt that really hurt their performance. And obviously that became evident to everybody else. So it was about the operator, not the fact that it was skilled nursing. And by way of comparison, you've got Care Trust, who in Ensign, has a tenant who has they have much higher exposure to than we had to Genesis. At the time we did the merger, we were down to about one-third of our NOI exposure as Genesis. But Ensign is viewed, justifiably so, as a very good operator. So, the fact that they've got oversized exposure to Ensign has actually accrued to their benefit. And I think, you know, that more than anything showed that the issues really weren't as much about skilled nursing, even though there has been negative sentiment. I don't want to make light of that, but it was really the operator that was driving value, just like we see on the ground. And so, you know, in in, in terms of your question, the things that we look for is we look for an operator that's focused on building partnerships in their healthcare community. We look for an operator that has the clinical capability of going up the acuity scale. And we look for an operator that, along with those two pieces, generates exceptional outcomes.
0: Yeah, and exactly, I think, to your point about and signed and Care Trust. You hear nothing but good things about them and the model that they've built, and they're, they're constantly growing. To that clinical outcomes piece, I kind of wanted to get your take on the vertical integration that we've been seeing in the industry, specifically the, the big blockbuster ProMedica, Well WellTower, HCR ManorCare deal. Obviously, that has dominated the headlines in addition to some of the headwinds in the industry. Do you see a lot more of those deals coming in the pipeline over the next year plus? Or is that something that
1: kind of... of I don't view that as a vertical integration deal. There's nothing about it other than the way it was marketed that puts any meat on those bones because for a number of reasons. One, there's very little overlap between where the ProMedica hospitals are and the Medicare skilled nursing facilities are. Correct. That in in and of itself makes it almost impossible to happen. Secondly, in those markets where... There may be overlap between a pro medical hospital and a managed care facility. That managed care facility, in all likelihood, already has relationships with other healthcare systems. And you're walking a dangerous line because someone owns you. You're going to start moving your business and your strategy towards that entity away from the entity that you've had tried and true relationships with for a long time. And look, when I was on the operating side with Sun and even with Regency Health Services in the 90s, we had pieces in a lot of different markets. We had skilled nursing. We had senior housing. We had home health. We had hospice. We had pharmacy. We had lab and radiology. And those relationships that every all the di- different entities have in any given market dictate the way things are structured. And then, of course, you have patient choice on top of it. And look, the last company that we saw that tried to do that was Kindred, and Kindred really owned a lot of the right pieces in order to make that happen, and, and it wasn't very effective. Not that they didn't execute well when it came to patient care or anything like that, but in terms of that integrated delivery system, it, it really wasn't very effective. I think integrated, we'll continue to see more integrated delivery systems, but they will be market-specific. you will have healthcare systems that partner up with whoever they think provide the best outcomes for the best costs in those markets across the post-acute spectrum. So skilled, hospice, home health, senior housing, the whole bit, right? Just because you buy something doesn't mean you can make it happen.
0: That's a fair point. What do you make then of one of the other things that's kind of come up in that deal that might end up being replicated elsewhere if it works is this idea that with these partnerships, a good skilled nursing facility chain can come in and help improve a hospital-based post-acute system. Is is there any future for that in the industry, or is that just something that kind of works on paper or works as a concept, but not in reality?
1: What do you mean by help a hospital system with their post-acute system?
0: So uh, on the Welltower presentation about their ProMedica deal, one of the things they floated was that HCR ManorCare, using their expertise, can go out and work with some hospital systems that may have a struggling post-acute arm, an in-house one, and kind of help them turn that around. That's what they're trying to do right now with ProMedica's post-acute, internal post-acute, at least according to their most recent presentation at their investigation. Yeah,
1: so so there's, there's a lot of history in this space, particularly in the 80s and 90s, where hospital systems were trying to get into the skilled business home health as well, and they really didn't know how to do it. So what what happened is that they would enter into management agreements with skilled nursing providers that they felt good about, and those skilled nursing providers would run their post-acute units for them. What wound up happening back back in the day was a company would have, let's say, a three-year management contract, and at the end of the three years, the hospital system believed that they could do it on their own at that point and they would not renew the contract. And so the skilled nursing providers at the time that had that as a business model basically gave up the business model because you can't build infrastructure if everybody's always gonna be canceling contracts on you, right? So I don't know how they're structured, but it's clearly fair to say there are hospitals that have their own post-acute units. Chances are very likely that they are having great challenges in running them effectively and any good skilled operator can come in there and help them do that better so if an hcr manicare care facility is going to contract with x hospital system to help them with that i'm sure they can be very helpful doing that i think healthcare systems over the years you know came to discover the hard way that you know the hospital business is one business but everything else is very different, very complex, very unique, and they really have never had success running themselves. So if they're able to do that, I think that's a fair statement.
0: Yeah. And that's what I've heard from a lot of people in talking about this deal and others is that the hospital mindset is just kind of incompatible with the post-acute care mindset in terms of staffing, in terms of treatment, in terms of you know how you can basically the nuts and bolts of running a healthcare facility it's you really need a partner on either end you know that skilled nursing facilities can't run a hospital and vice versa is at least what i've heard
1: and cost and cost control you know the the skilled nursing model more than any other model in healthcare was always a cost based model cuz remember way back in the day You did very little Medicare business. It was all Medicaid. So you basically had relatively fixed top line. So everything was about cost control. So there's a lot that, that that's sort of the DNA of the space to a large extent. And healthcare systems have never had that. In fact, really quite the opposite, right? So that that's also another key factor. It's just culturally, it's a very different kind of thing.
0: Exactly. And I want to switch gears. Speaking of costs, I'll try to segue this into reimbursements. The big trend over the next year is obviously going to be PDPM It's upon us pretty much already, even though we still have nine to 10 months until its eventual implementation in October of uh, this coming year. You have said and a lot of your colleagues at the other REITs have said that there's going to be a wave of smaller companies selling off their properties once they realize just how difficult it might be to adapt from rugs to PDPM, especially if you're a smaller mom and pop. Given all the other headwinds in the industry, that might be the final push out the door that you need. I'm kind of curious, when do you think that's going to happen? Is that something that we're going to have to wait until it's implemented to see that shake out? Is it happening now? Is it going to happen leading up to the shift in October of next year? What's kind of the time frame for that?
1: Yeah, so I think it's going to be 2019. We haven't seen that much skilled product on the market in 2018, even for, you know, we like Omega and Care Trust, which do almost exclusively skilled. You know, there hasn't been much done. And I think that's because, you know, the good skilled operators see the light at the end of the tunnel. They feel good about PDPM. They see the demographics starting to kick in, you know, maybe the latter part of 2019. They know that supply is going to continue to decrease. So they had plenty of assets to buy because of all of us that have been selling, but they have been putting stuff on the market. The small traditional kind of Medicaid shop, mom and pop provider, if they're stubborn, they'll wait until PDPM happens, which is going to be really problematic to them. I think a lot of them will look to get out before then because, you know, you're not just, it's not just a clinical issue. It's clinical. It's operational. It's software. It's accounting. While the change from our perspective is positive, the incentives are broadened. It's a much, much simpler system. The transition requires, investment and it requires, you know, a level of commitment and understanding of what to do. And, you know, if you've been, if you've been a skilled nursing provider that's been focused on short term rehab and you've gone up the acuity scale, you're going to be able to make that transition because you're dealing, you've been dealing with a very complex business model. If you're a provider that's still been providing the traditional long term care, almost what we see in in assisted living these days, then making that transition is a complete sea change. So it's hard to see a lot of those folks doing that. So that's why we do think that there'll be some opportunities, whether it's just in partnership with our existing operating tenants or bringing new operators
0: in. Uh, you mentioned the long term care, and I know that contrary to popular belief, and this is a fact that still blows a lot of people's minds, when you think about skilled nursing in the United States or nursing homes uh, writ large, is that Medicaid remains the number one funding source. About two thirds, maybe a little less than two thirds of everyone uh, in nursing homes in America is covered by Medicaid, not Medicare. Do you see long-term Medicaid reform in the future? You know, a, a kind of a sea change. Obviously, it's not as easy as CMS waving a magic wand, the way it did the PDPM because Medicaid is such a state level program. But is there something? Is it on the horizon? Is it something that really needs to be done in order to kind of meet the the growing demand for these services? Because it seems like they're solving one problem, but there's a big one just sitting out there.
1: Yeah, no, I don't think, I don't think that's going to happen. And I think we're going to have a huge societal problem because if, if you think about it, so if you look at what's been happening, you've got skilled nursing providers moving up the acuity chain. The big providers are more and more Medicare focused, right? You know, our, our Medicare revenue for our aggregated tenants is about 40%. Then you add, you know, 15 plus percent private pay and other insurance in there and you're almost at, 60% non-Medicaid. So you see the good providers have been working towards getting Medicaid down. And then you've got assisted living, which is now providing the kind of more traditional, lighter, long-term care that nursing homes historically have done, but they take almost exclusively private pay. So I think the, the concern that I have, and you know, for what it's worth, when I was lobbying on the operational side, we started talking to Congress about this you know, in 2007 and 2008 and 2009 that with supply continuing to drop and now, and now you've got the demographic that's going to start coming in, you're going to have a huge displacement of people because while you have certain individuals who hire a lawyer, they transfer their assets and they qualify for Medicaid, even though they probably shouldn't, there are a lot of truly indigent people in our country and in our skilled nursing facilities that really don't have the money to pay private pay. And so if you've got skilled nursing providers not wanting to care for them anymore and taking less and less of them because in order for them to do well, they've got to take a, a different kind of patient and you've got senior housing providers who are willing to provide that level of care but only the private pay because Medicaid waivers, you know, is different in different states. It's very unpredictable and unreliable. Um, in some states it's adequate, in some states it's completely inadequate. And so you can't build a business on something like that.
0: Is Medicare Advantage going to fill the gap there? I know that they're sort of slowly expanding assisted living coverage and they're, they're, that's kind of yeah. being loaded as so one of the ways in.
1: So they'll fill, they'll fill, Medicare Advantage will fill some gap, but that's not a long-term payer, right? And so um, they're going to fill some gap in senior housing. But for the truly indigent Medicaid patient, they're really not going to have anywhere to go. And I'm really, I'm very concerned about it. I mean, you're going to have people that are going to be at home longer than they should be at home or just be in, in places that just are really inadequate. And I, and I think you're going to have to, there's going to be some really bad stories and there's going to be some blood on the street. And I don't think our government's going to react until that's the case. So I think, I think, there has, I think there's going to be access issues. And some really sad stories that are going to see print before the government does anything.
0: Yeah, it's certainly an ongoing, it's an ongoing issue. And there's a lot of, (laughs) given the current political climate, it's uncertain when that, when we're going to make movement on that kind of thing. Well,
1: let's talk about it. I mean, look, I mean, if you think about a couple of states, for example, and You're right, it's a state-by-state issue because there's 50 different programs, but there's a federal match there. So, you know, the feds have to step up and do something about it. You've got an ongoing lobbying effort in Texas to get a provider tax in place. It failed last year, and a lot of us are supporting that effort. But the rates there are horribly inadequate. You look at a state like Washington, fully 25% of the nursing home providers in Washington state could go under because the Medicaid rates are so horrible. How is that even possible? Who do they think are going to take care of these people? This is supposed to be the greatest generation, right? <laughs> but that's <laughs> not I mean, how I, they treat it.
0: I think the industry did do a good job. You know, uh, The summer of 2017 was the summer of Trump care and concerns about cuts to Medicaid. And I really do think the industry, both sides on the nonprofit and the for-profit sides, really united and, and said, did a great education campaign to say, look, Medicaid is not just for poor people, because I think that's the stigma There's a certain political stigma among some people that, okay, oh, Medicaid is for lazy people who don't want to work. And even those people, you know, regardless of the politics of Medicaid, I think the industry did a really good job of coming together and saying, no, Medicaid is a vital program. It helps young mothers, it helps families, and it also helps seniors. It's like, it's probably the way that you're going to get taken care of in a skilled nursing facility or a, a nursing home, whether you realize it or not. Well,
1: yeah, and I think the industry, I think, has always done a good job of that, and I think that's the correct point to make. And I certainly think if you look at the recession, for example, pretty much every Medicaid program that I recall was cut, and on an aggregate basis, skilled nursing wasn't. It wasn't. It was kept flat, you know, up and down in different states, but I'm talking on an aggregate basis, 50 states. But it was kept flat because of that reason, that it was seen as a critical safety net. And could create access issues but the government has never actually had to face the reality of true access issues when you've got the demographic that's really going to start hitting at the same time unlike senior housing where there's more than adequate supply you've got supply going down and because it's so expensive to build skilled nursing In most places, you can't build skilled nursing facilities. Texas is is an example where you can because Texas is less regulated than most states, so you actually can get it done. But one of the things I think the government's going to have to consider isn't just the reimbursement system itself, the Medicaid reimbursement system itself, but somehow easing up on regulations in a way that makes it attractive to actually build a skilled nursing facility so that people can be taken care of.
0: To that point, I wanted to ask you a question that I like to ask everyone. And it, it seems like it's the waiting for Godot in uh, the skilled nursing industry. When do you think those demographic trends are? When are providers really going to feel that? You know, there are some people who say next year. There are some people who say not until the middle of the 2020s. Where would you put it?
1: I would put it towards the latter part of 2019. And, and the, the impact is disproportionate. So, look, none of us expect this big wave to come in. I think uh, Omega has a model that I think is a very good model. They're looking at, I think, maybe 2% increases annually. But here's the thing. The occupancy has dropped so dramatically, you know, over the last 10 years. So, you know, here's the the way to think about it. If you have a 100-bed facility that's got 82 patients in it, you've got no leverage. All your costs are fixed, every blemish shows, the labor problems that everybody suffers from are even more apparent because you've got no place to hide when your occupancy is that low and all your costs are fixed. When you get that one extra patient in, that goes straight to the bottom line. It's a disproportionate positive impact. And in all likelihood, in most facilities, you may be able to submit a few extra patients before you're adding any costs. And then when you start to add costs, they're going to be really incremental and on the nurse staffing side, right? Because housekeeping, dietary, maintenance, laundry, administration, all that stuff is really basically fixed. So it's not going to take, you're not going to have to go from 82% to 90% for the industry to turn around. The impact will be disproportionate even as the demographic comes in sort of slowly. And I do think that the demographic will come in, to skilled nursing before senior housing just because of the health issue. You know, as people hit 85, you're going to always have that percentage of people that have cognitive issues, mobility issues, comorbidities, whatever.
0: Yeah, they can't, they can't choose to go into a skilled nursing facility. They have to.
1: Yeah, and in fact, a good example of that is, again, going back to the recession, you saw, you know, senior housing get hit pretty hard because and, and assisted living there was still a hospitality model. Now it's a needs-based model. And you had hospitals get hit hard. People were deferring elective surgeries, right? But Mm -hmm. in skilled nursing, you didn't see the same phenomena because, you know, if you're 40 years old and, and you need knee surgery, you can wait for a while in all likelihood. When you're 85, you just can't. And so we actually saw very little disruption there. I mean, maybe people can wait, you know, an extra month or two, but that's kind of about it. I think I think all of that sort of goes to the point, and I think that period of time has some good examples for us.
0: Exactly. Well, look, well, I'm about at the end of my time, but I wanted to wrap up uh, with one last question about kind of the place of REITs in the skilled nursing industry. Uh, I know there's been a lot of talk blaming REITs about maybe charging rents for being uh, charging rents that were too high that then led to some of the problems facing the skilled nursing industry from the operator standpoint. Where do you see the position of REITs in the industry today and going forward and you know how do they present advantages over other models of investment in skilled nursing?
1: I'd break it into two pieces. In terms of the whole REITs being, you know, greedy and all that kind of thing, all those some of those stories Really, you're talking about some very specific situations there where there were private buyouts and, you know, we all know who we're talking about and everybody pocketed a lot of money at the time and it was at the expense of the operator. Sometimes that management team made a lot of money as well and they had big escalators and the rent was too high. So I think that's one set of issues and whether facility-based ownership and private equity has learned some hard lessons or not you know time will tell but there's a common theme with some of the companies that have had issues where the issues have been sponsorship whether it's been you know the Carlisle HCP care deal originally or the Genesis formation HCN deal at the time or some of the issues that you know fortress has with new senior or whatever you've got sponsorship issues there so that's one that's sort of one category the other which is more broader based and i think that's where you know our focus needs to be is when businesses go through tough times i think as a landlord you've got to be cognizant of that and be pre- be prepared to provide some relief and you can put mechanisms in place where as they do better you know maybe you know you can do better as well a little bit later on but you've got to be flexible with that that was that was the entire value creation opportunity that we saw with CCP. Those operators, you know, the rents had been what it was for a long time, you know, when they were part of NTOS. Before that, it was NHP in most cases. Even though there was a downturn in the business, nothing was done to provide those operators with any relief. When we looked at it, we knew a lot of those operators and said, hey, they've got, they've got some really good operators in here. They're just doing all they can do to make the rent check every month, they have no free cash flow to reinvest in their business. So that was kind of that was the value creation opportunity. And you know, you look at a signature today, and you know their their rent coverage with reduced rents was 147. You know, on our last earnings call, you know they've got a lot more running room now. They're doing well, and and other operators obviously in our portfolio as well. You see, you know. Most of our operators having you know much better coverage, so I, I I just think I think as long as the REITs are cognizant of that, so put that aside, sort of from the private equity guys, then I think this will continue to be a long term play. And I would say, having been on the operating side, I had leases, you know, with all the REITs, and Omega was a great partner for us when I was running Sun. And Aviv, because, you know, at that time, you know, they were two separate REITs. Same thing. And Omega worked with us when we were restructuring the company out of bankruptcy. You know, they were, they were actually, you know, a very good partner for us there. So I, I do believe that, that the REITs, particularly the REITs that have a commitment to skilled nursing, and we all kind of know who they are, I think you'll see them being flexible when they need to be flexible. Then I think they'll be really good, we'll all be really good long-term partners. For the operating tenants, and I think one of the positive things as we've been working with our tenants to restructure, you know, the, the shareholders get it. You know, the analysts are getting it. You've just got to do some things, you know, to help guys out. And as they do better, then we'll do better as well.
0: All right, I think that's a good note to end on, Rick. I really appreciate you taking the time today, and uh, best of luck in the coming year.
1: Yeah, anytime, and have,
0: have great holidays, Alex. All right, you too. Thanks so much. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banko, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.